I'm not sure if you're like me, but I find myself periodically waving at a wall with no response. Recently, I went to a restaurant in which I went to the restroom and I washed my hands, which, by the way, everyone should be doing. And after washing my hands, I went to the towel dispenser in which I'm waving my hands, waiting for the towel to come out. But nothing happened. And instead of thinking, oh, it's probably not working, I thought, I'm going to wave even faster, okay? Has anybody else done this? Okay. Well, you see, that towel dispenser is useless. It's not good for anything. And it is a picture of what Jesus is driving home in Mark chapter 11, where there is a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. But this tree, just like this towel dispenser, is pointing to something bigger. It's the people of God who claim to know God, but are not producing fruit. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. As a faith family, we're walking through the gospel of Mark together. This is a fast-paced, hard-hitting book. That's why it's, we titled the title the On the Move. We see Jesus on the move throughout this book as Mark is quickly following the life and ministry of Jesus. It's as if he has a, a cell phone and he's following Christ al- along and he's holding up these quick videos of these quick moments of going from one event to another of how Jesus is impacting people and pointing them to the Father. Now we've made a significant turn as a faith family through this gospel. We've seen where Jesus has completed his ministry up north around Galilee in chapters one through nine. We saw in chapter 10 where Jesus headed south into Judea, where he had a a ministry over in Perea. But now Jesus has finally come into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday has just taken place, is what we saw last week in the text. He has examined everything in the temple upon entering into the city, verse 11. And now Monday of Holy Week has arrived. And Jesus is arriving into the temple, and it's as if Mark is announcing Jesus is here, and he's got some business to take care of. He's got some things to do. He is about to clean house. Indeed, he's going to clean God's house. And that's where we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. The scripture says, The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. 
Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. So what is Jesus up to here? Why did he curse a fig tree? Is he throwing a tantrum because he isn't getting breakfast? Is he upset because the tree got his order wrong? No. Jesus is illustrating the spiritual condition of Israel. But is he not also possibly illustrating the condition of our nation, of our church, of you? I want you to notice in the text these four truths, these four realities. I want you to see first that Jesus denounces hypocrisy. Monday morning of Holy Week, Jesus wakes up. He probably gets alone with the Father and spends time in prayer. He then leads his disciples on a two-mile walk to Jerusalem from Bethany. He has a big day ahead of him. And so he stops to get a to-go order of breakfast. He sees a fig tree and looks for some delicious fruit to relieve his hunger. But when Jesus approaches the fig tree, there's no, there's no fruit. He finds that it has nothing but leaves. You see, the tree overpromised but did not deliver. Its outward appearance looked like a fig tree blooming out of season, verse 13. But in reality, it was just show. There was nothing there. There was no substance. It looked one way. But in reality, it was another. You see, Israel's leaders were just like this tree. They said one thing, but acted another. But we see here that Israel's leaders, they were hypocrites. Hypocrisy marked these religious leaders. Outwardly, they appeared like spiritual giants with great devotion to God. But in reality, they were just hypocrites. Jesus already called them out about this in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, in which he said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Question, what about you? Do you claim Christ as your savior, but your life looks nothing like him? Do you claim to be a Christian but on the inside of your heart, you're far from him. From a distance, you look like a fig tree. From a distance, you look like a Christian. But upon careful inspection of the Holy Spirit, the examination of your heart, there's no fruit. There's no outward evidence of an inward Christ. You see, if you claim to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to cultivate within you the character of Jesus. You become more and more like Christ. Now, listen, as followers of Jesus, we're not perfect yet. We will be perfect at the resurrection. That day is coming. But until then, we are in a daily war in which we are putting sin to death in our own hearts and lives, and we're growing in grace. We're pursuing Christ's likeness. We desire to become more and more like Jesus. This is the fruit that Jesus is after here. And evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life is that he prunes off parts of your life that don't look like Jesus. 
so that future fruit might come forth through your attitude, your words, your actions. You see, from your heart, if you belong to Jesus, you genuinely love Jesus. From your heart, you genuinely want to study his word. From your heart, you want to spend time with him. You're growing in grace and in patience and in joy and in self-control. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, evidence that you belong to Jesus is that you're becoming more like Jesus. His character is being reproduced in your life. The Holy Spirit is cutting off things in you that don't look like Christ, and the Spirit is conforming you to the image of Christ. That's what Paul said in Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. It is the mission of God to conform you, to make you look more and more like Jesus. But here's the thing. If there is no fruit in your life, then you are not connected to the vine of Christ. If you're not becoming more like Christ, then you don't know Christ. You see, one of the dangers of living in the American South is cultural Christianity. On the outside, you can look like a fig tree. On the outside, you can go to church, you can, you can get baptized, you can give to the church, you can say Christian things. But when your heart is examined of what's really there, when the curtain is pulled back of what's really going on in your heart, when there's an examination by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit of what really is there, there's no fruit. There's no evidence of knowing Christ. This is why cultural Christianity is damning is that if you are saying, well, I grew up in church, I go to church, so I must be a Christian. No, your soul is at stake here. Jesus said it like this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who claims to know me or call upon my name as Lord really does know me. You see, the difference between heaven and hell is about 18 inches. For there are many people who know about Jesus here, but they don't know Jesus personally here. You see, what's happening here in the text is that Jesus is using this tree as an image as an illustration of what's really going on in the heart of Israel. The question is, is this what's really going on in your heart? Are you someone who is acting one way and saying something completely different? Jesus here is calling out those who are claiming to know God when in reality they don't. One of the more sobering passages of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But 
If it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. You see, Hebrews 6 is a warning. It's for those who've been around Christian things. It's for those who've had Christian experiences. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have been enlightened. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted God's good word and then they fall away. They live one way and say something completely different. When their life is examined, there is no Jesus. There's no fruit. There's no evidence that they belong to Christ. You see, if you do not repent and trust in Jesus, you will wither and die just like this tree. That's the point Jesus is making here. Is that apart from knowing him, this is the future of those who reject the gospel. This is a warning to you individually. Question, do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus? Do you know him personally? Does he abide? Does he remain in you and you abide and remain in him? For some of you, you need to examine yourself. Ask the question, do I really belong to Christ? Well, Kenneth, I've, I've heard I'm not supposed to question my salvation. Oh, yes, you should. Examine yourself, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? You see, your eternity here is at stake. And if you are not examining your heart, you're in danger. You and I need to make sure that we get this right. Do you know Jesus? Or has hypocrisy taken over your life? You're putting on a facade. You're putting up a mask. You're displaying a show. Examine yourself. Say, Lord, am I in the faith? I would invite you to ask other people. Ask your spouse, your children, co-workers and neighbors, those who know you the best. Hey, do I look like I know Jesus? Do you see evidences of grace? Do you see marks that God lives inside of me? Because if not, then we need to come to this point right here. Kenneth, what do I do if I am a hypocrite? How do I respond to my hypocrisy? I put this in your notes. First, you confess your sin. You confess your sin. David prays in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me. In 1 John 1, 9, he says, John says that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to uh, forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Take what's in the dark and bring it to the light. Let God heal you with his gospel. You can put on a show. You can be hypocritical, but God sees right through it. So today, would you step out of the dark, bring it to the light and say, God, here's my heart. Here's my life. I want to confess my sin. I want to confess my hypocrisy. I want to be the same man. I want to be the same woman wherever I go, where Jesus is king and I'm following hard after him. You confess your sin. The next one, number two, you repent. It's a change of mind. It's a U-turn. 
You're pursuing sin and self, and to repent means you're turning away from that and you're turning to the Savior. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he prayed Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There's repentance in what you're saying, God, I'm turning away from this life. I'm turning away from the things that I desire, and I'm going after your desires. I want what you want. I want my heart to align with your heart. I want you to bear much fruit through my life so that people around me will see Christ in me. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm confessing, Lord, I, here's my past. Here's what I've done. I want to turn from that, Lord, and Jesus, you're everything. I'm repenting and I'm coming to you. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But then thirdly, you run to Jesus for grace. In Romans 5, verse 20, Paul says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied all the more. You see, you run to Jesus saying, Lord, I want more of you. I need you. I want you. I want all of my life to be centered around you. Y'all, this text, this is also a warning to our church. If we become a country club of hypocrisy, of unfruitfulness, we will receive the judgment of Jesus. You see, the sobering reality is this. In the eyes of Jesus, if you are not fruitful, you are not useful. If we don't stay connected to Jesus, if we don't daily deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Christ, if we don't humble ourselves and stay connected to the true vine of Jesus, John 15, then we're in danger of not being useful in the hands of the carpenter. We're going to be tools that are unused by him and we will become just like this tree. Heed the warning of the text. Jesus denounces hypocrisy. But secondly, Jesus detests religious corruption. He detests religious corruption. The temple complex, y'all, is absolutely massive. It's 35 acres Imagine 25 football fields side by side. One document I read is that the courtyard could hold up to a quarter of a million people. It took Herod's temple that Jesus here is in, it took 18,000 workers 95 years to build. At the time of Jesus' ministry, this is the largest man-made structure on earth. So as Jesus comes in and as he is flipping tables, as he is turning over chairs, this is not the first time he's done this. He did it three years earlier when his ministry began. We read about that in John chapter 2. Now he's doing it a second time, verse 15, and he's flipping the tables. He's flipping the chairs of those selling doves. And what's happening is some people are even cutting through the temple as a shortcut to get to the other side. That's what we see there in verse 16. He would, he would permit no one to carry goods through the temple. It's kind of like on a college campus, you can see sidewalks, but then through the sidewalks on the grass, you see this dirt path, right? It's because college students, they take the shortcut. Well, with a 35-acre campus, people wanted to go from one side of the temple to the other. Instead of walking around, they're walking right through. There's no reverence for God, no respect for God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you guys can walk around. I'm not letting you guys bring your animals through here, marching them through. This is not a shortcut. This is the temple of the living God. 
and these hundreds of thousands of people that are gathered during Passover, they are being forced to purchase animals for sacrifice that these temple priests are charging exorbitant prices for. The religious rulers here, they're running a monopoly. They turn the worship of God into a for-profit scheme. And so Jesus here, he sees extortion and bribery and greed and dishonest gain, and he detests religious corruption. He is overwhelmed with this righteous indignation. His anger compels him to get physical. He has a passion for the purity of worship. And so he kicks these people out of the temple like a bouncer. He grabs these money-grubbing profiteers by the scruff of the neck, and he kicks them out. Jesus detests those who do wicked things in his name. You see, he had a passion for God's temple, and he hated how it was being uh, treated. It's in fulfillment of the prophet uh, David when he said in Psalm 69 verse 9, Zeal for your house has consumed me. You see, instead of the sound of people singing praise to God, instead of people praying together and worshiping Adonai, celebrating Yahweh, the sounds were of people exchanging money, coins filling the coffers of the wealthy, the chaos of animals being sold by these carnival barkers people desecrating God's holy temple. In addition to all of that, the poor are being taken advantage of. Look at verse 15. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Doves were the sacrificial animal for the poor. According to Leviticus 15, those who could not afford an animal from the flock the Lord permitted for them to provide a dove or a pigeon. We read in Luke 2, that's what Mary and Joseph offered. When Jesus was born, they go to the temple and they offer uh, turtle doves. Why? Because they were poor. They couldn't afford a lamb for sacrifice. Well, these religious gold diggers are taking advantage of the poor people and they're turning the worship of God into a for-profit business. And this was not God's original intent for the temple. This was not what God had planned for this facility. It'd be a place of worship. What's the purpose? Well, so number three, Jesus declares God's greater global purpose. He says, verse 17, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, God's temple is to be a house of prayer, a place of worship that attracts and blesses the nations. The temple was to be a gathering place where people could gather to worship the Lord, to seek his face, to pray. This is what Solomon had in mind when he prayed in 1 Kings 8 at its dedication. He prayed for even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigners ask. Then all the peoples of earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. You see, for the Jews, they wanted to purge the Gentiles out of the temple. 
They wanted the Gentiles nowhere near the temple. Well, here Jesus includes Gentiles. He includes the nations. Here Jesus is going to be looking forward towards a new global family of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on planet earth. This is great news for us, y'all. The gospel is not for one people group. It is for all peoples, all nations, all skin tones, all languages. As Jesus is doing this, the chief priests and the scribes, they're ticked. They're vehemently angry, the text says. Verse 18, they started looking for a way to kill him. But you see, they didn't realize that the true temple is in the temple. You see, when the first time Jesus came and started flipping tables three years earlier when his ministry started, he told the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about brick and mortar inside Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple of his body because it's through his death and resurrection that he, as the true temple, will be the one through which the nations will come to him. You see, Jesus is the true temple where all nations go to pray. By means of the temple, named Jesus, now millions of Christians all over the world are temples of the Holy Spirit, And so now we as temples go to the true temple, Christ. Now there's unrestriction on geography. The nations can now come straight to the temple, King Jesus. You see, prayer is no longer about a place, it's about a person. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to pray because now we who have the Holy Spirit in us, we can go straight into the temple as Temples of the Holy Spirit. We get to go straight to King Jesus. We pray to God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now those who've trusted in Christ, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. In fact, Simon Peter says it like this, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, in the gospel, Jesus gave his life to ransom people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And even today, Jesus is on the move around the world, building a spiritual house of which we, as living stones, we are being built up in him. You see, Jesus here in the temple is showing the boldness of God because he's zealous for the temple, because it's pointing to him. Well, what he does here, it angers the Jewish leaders. They want to kill him all the more, but they're afraid of the crowd because there's thousands of people who are just astonished by Jesus' teaching. So whenever evening came, he leaves the city. It's not safe for Jesus to be in Jerusalem at night. Bad things happen at night to Jesus, as he will find out later. But as he retreats back to Bethany, tomorrow's coming, and he's got some more lessons to teach, which is number four. One of those lessons 
is that Jesus desires true faith from his people. Early the next morning, Jesus' disciples are making the two-mile walk back to Jerusalem, and they come across that same tree that he had cursed yesterday. It was completely withered from the roots up. Now, once again, Jesus displays his sovereign power over creation, speaking a word to the tree that does exactly what he says. As I was studying this week, I came across several texts of people who were upset with Jesus over the fact that he would kill a tree. I think it's somewhat ironic that yesterday was Arbor Day. And yet there's a warning for us that we not get so worked up over a dead tree. May we be a people who weep not over dead trees, but over dead souls. For it was the prophet Jonah that God rebuked when he was more upset over a dead plant than an entire lost city of Nineveh. May we be a people who weep over what really matters. We see where Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen, for my brothers and sisters, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. He's saying, I'm weeping, I'm tears are coming over the lostness of Israel. He's broken for those who are Jewish and don't know Jesus. And he's saying, I would be willing to give up my salvation and let them be saved and let me go to hell. I want so badly for them to know Jesus. Question, when was the last time you wept over lost people? When was the last time tears fell from your face over those who are far from God? Y'all, I long for God to do a work in Shelby County where there is an awakening where God is doing something that only he gets the glory. That it's no way that man can describe what God is doing. That a, a, a revival sweeps across our community where the police are bored. And all teachers have to do is teach. And marriages are reconciled. And the spirit of the living God is on the move in the hearts and homes of people. And God is able to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. But we've got to be willing to get on our knees and seek his face. And we've got to weep over what really matters. We don't need to be weeping over a tree. We want to weep over those who don't know Christ. Well, as Jesus, he's leading his disciples back towards Jerusalem. We see that he desires true faith in the hearts of his people. He says, verse 22, have faith in God. This is a call to trust in the one true living God. This is a call to say, I'm banking my life upon the one true living God who is sovereign over all, who judges justly and gives grace to those who seek him. You see, great faith is what God is after. God is after us to have great, robust, strong, deeply rooted in the scriptures, Faith, faith that has such confidence in God's power. Faith that believes that God can do anything, even move mountains. You see, the mountain Jesus is talking about here is hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. It's an overstatement to teach. 
The mountain represents what appears to be immovable, impossible, beyond our ability. But you see, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That is where faith begins. Andrew Murray said it so well when he says, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. You see, Jesus is like, Peter, you think killing a tree is a big deal. Man, you trust in the Lord. Watch him be able to move mountains. Look at the power of God on display. See, when we pray in faith, we're trusting in the one who's able to do the impossible, even throw mountains into the sea. Now, what verse 24 does not mean is that if you pray really, really, really hard, God will give you what you want. It's not what Jesus is saying here. The Lord is not a genie in a bottle. We don't pray in our feelings, hoping to get what we want. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, the confidence of our prayer life is not in our prayers, but in the one in whom we are praying to. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in the one who tells the mountains what to do. How many false teachers have told, wrongly told people that they did not get what they wanted because they didn't have enough faith or because they didn't pray hard enough? That's garbage. When we trust in the Lord, when we seek Him in prayer, we're trusting in His ability, not ours. When we cry out in faith, we're not saying, God, my faith is strong, and so you have to answer me. No. We're saying, God, I trust in your ability. I trust in your power. You're the one who has the power to throw mountains into the seas. You're the one who's able to do far more than ever I can ever ask or imagine. You are the one who's able to do the impossible. We're trusting in his power, not ours. His sovereignty, not ours. His ability, not ours. You see, the doubt Jesus is referencing here is not doubting of your faith. It's doubting the character of God. It's doubting his nature. It's doubting his power. saying, God, I don't think you can do this. Jesus says, no, when you pray, don't doubt God's ability. He can do it. He's powerful. He's good. He's strong. And you can trust him. And he invites you to come to him. In 1 John 5.14, John says, this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything, here we go, according to his will. He hears us. He hears us. So the umbrella underneath which all of our prayers are offered to God is, God, glorify your name. Your will be done. God, this is my desire. I'm asking you to do this, which Jesus invites us to do. He's a generous, benevolent, good God. And what he's saying, pray big prayers. Ask for big things. You come boldly to him. This is what Jesus is calling for here in the text. But at the same time, we do so with an understanding that it is his glory, which is our greatest desire. God, glorify your name through this that I'm bringing before you. You see, prayer must be according to the will of God as it is revealed in the word of God. Prayer is not trying to get God to think like us. It's God getting us to think more like him. And we passionately, we pursue him and we cry out to him and ask for his plans and his purposes to be accomplished in us. And as we do so, 
We do it with the spirit of forgiveness. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. We forgive because God forgave us in Christ. You see, it's out of an overflow of the Atlantic Ocean of forgiveness that we've gotten in Jesus, that we can pour out an endless supply of forgiveness of those who've sinned against us. You and I have sinned against a holy God. We deserve wrath. And yet he's merciful. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he graciously forgives us. He washes the slate clean. He makes us new and says, I know all of your past, all of your junk, the things that people know and the things that people don't know. I know all of it. And my son did enough at the cross to cover it all. That is good news. That is the gospel where you have a God who loves you so much that at great cost to himself, he makes a way for you to be forgiven. So when you pray, you do so with the posture of your heart of forgiveness. If you find bitterness and unforgiveness taking root in your heart, look unto Jesus. Go to him and be reminded of the avalanche of sins that you have committed against God, in which he says, I'm covering all of it. You're washed, you're clean, you're new, you belong to me. This is who he is. You see, it's forgiveness and prayer and faith. These are fruits that you know Jesus. In fact, that's the impact point I'm calling all of us to today is Believe upon Jesus and bear much fruit. You see, all things are going to be laid bare before the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. Every word, action, and attitude of our hearts will one day be laid naked before the all-seeing eye of God. The one who knows all, the one who sees all, will one day be laid out there before him. And if hypocrisy is marking your life right now, today repent. Turn away from it. And say, Lord, here is my heart. Here is my life. Lord, I'm believing the gospel. Jesus, I'm yours. And through me abiding in you, I'm asking for you to bear fruit through my life. May people see the power of the gospel in the fruit that your spirit is creating in me. Maybe today you've allowed other things to crowd your heart other than Christ. Then today is a day in which you say, Lord, I'm going to get low before you. I want to humble myself and say, God, I'm yours completely. Maybe you're someone where Jesus is waving his hand and there's no fruit coming out. Would you look unto Jesus and say, Lord, I'm yours. Use my life for whatever you please.